Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. The theme of this week's show is women, and this is part one. Part two of the show will be next week. Joining me in conversation today for part one is Nebraska's First Lady, Suzanne Shaw. First Lady Suzanne Shaw has lived throughout the Midwest, finally settling in Nebraska. Suzanne attended Oklahoma State University, where she received a bachelor's degree in English, then a master's degree in business administration. Suzanne worked for Xerox and then at the University of South Dakota as a director in the residence hall system and as the chief judicial officer for the dean of students. To receive her bachelor's in nursing, Suzanne moved to Omaha to attend Creighton University. Upon graduation, she worked as an RN at Creighton St. Joseph Hospital During this time, she met and married Pete Ricketts, and they now have three children. Suzanne's biggest priority has been raising her family. She has also served as an active board member at Child Saving Institute and Nebraska Families Collaborative, and served as a court-appointed special advocate for three years. In 2017, Suzanne's main focus is Nebraska's sesquicentennial celebration, honoring Nebraska's 150 years of statehood. Suzanne, it's my honor to have you here. Thanks for being here. Thank you. And I'm impressed you could say sesquicentennial. Good for you. (laughs) That's a real test around the state. A theme of women is such a broad theme, just, just to say women, and it can encompass so many different things. So before we embark on talking about that theme, what comes to your mind, first of all, when I say the theme is women? I think, would we ever have a topic theme of men and what would that encompass? (laughs) I, I don't know what that means. You know, the traditional role versus the new perspective on things, um, how we define ourselves, how we keep our identity, um, whether we want that to be neutral, uh, or feminine or masculine, it's just, it's so broad. And it'll be, you know, having daughters, it's interesting to, it would be interesting to have this conversation with, um, talk to them about what their thoughts are on on being a woman. So that of itself raises so many interesting questions. Where did they develop that sense of personal esteem and strength in in their own identity? Boy, you know, they have a family that gives them that, I think, gives them the security to be able to be who they want to be. Um, I would certainly be defined, I think, by most as a strong, opinionated woman. Um, Pete certainly supports that. And I think Omaha is a great community that supports strong, intelligent women. We have great schools that have supported that the whole way through. Um, Boy, I hope every girl in this community has that opportunity. Would that not be a gift to give? That every girl could grow up and feeling like they could do what they want to do and say the things that they need to say. Yeah, boy. Okay, there's my dream for the day. Having that dream suggests that you would assert that that is not the reality now. Oh, I don't think it is. I think anybody who deals with um, the reality of problems that need to be solved in the city, in the state, in the nation, in this world, know that that's not the truth. Um, That we have too many problems to solve 
too many people being hurt and not being able to say what they and and not and not being able to be who they want to be. And, um, even if they felt like they had, they saw that as a vision. They can't. They don't feel like they have the capacity to get there. And I do need to step back and say I feel like I've raised my son to be that same person. Um, we have these long conversations about what it means to be respectful and loving for yourself and and others. To have self-respect and to have respect, um, to be strong, but also to be compassionate. So I feel like I've done that. I feel like we've given that gift to our son too. So I, I'm curious if you would unpack a little bit more. How do you tell your daughters to be um, uh, strong, empowered women? And perhaps how how do you tell your son to be um, respectful of you know his own relationships with um, masculinity and at the same time being respectful of, of the equality of, of women too? Well, an equality of both. Um, I think I think you start off, I was given a huge gift by having the parents I had, people who taught me those things. And uh, that's where I become very humble because I get that this did not start with me. This is a gift I was given and that a lot of people don't have that gift. I try to make sure my kids understand that too, that we are not beings that just suddenly existed. We are standing on the foundation that was given to us. So a little humility and some compassion, I think, is at the heart of it all. Um, Beyond that, I think just being honest and open, having the tough conversations with your kids. I mean, it's, you know, when you see a billboard that talks about abuse, I don't, about domestic abuse, I don't hide behind it. I mean, my kids have been hearing about it, about, you know, this is not how you ever get treated. If somebody treats you this way, there's no changing, just walk away. And you never treat somebody like that. Um, so I, I, I think not being afraid to have those conversations. Also, having them question me. Boy, I get questioned a lot. And I have, I've grown from that. But that's part of the family that we are, um, that we really confront. And I hate to say confront, but question and challenge and discuss. That's a big part of where we are. That's our personal family value. And it's so interesting too, because clearly the context of this is somewhat unfair as well, because it's almost a, an obligation of a teenager to be rebellious and somewhat um, you know, mischievous. That's, that's just mm-hmm. how teens are wired. So um, even though we're talking in terms of intrinsic values and the nobility of the human condition, um, I'm sure you can remember what it was like to be a teen, and I can, and it certainly wasn't all roses. No, no. And I, my, my joke, although it's not really a joke, is I'm sure God looked down on me and said, oh, Suzanne, I feel so bad for your children. I'm going to send you three easy ones. And I got three easy, great kids. I mean, they have just been gifts. Um, so there's a humility that goes along with understanding that things could have turned out very differently. And um, I'm sure everybody looks at their children as gifts. Mine were easy. That was, that's what I'm trying to get at. Um, so I, I, there's humility there too in understanding. I don't know what everybody else goes through.
you are first lady and that carries all sorts of I would imagine public expectations and um, maybe some constraints too but why don't you tell me first how do you perceive the role of first lady um, first of all, it's sort of a made-up title. There's nothing in the Constitution. There's nothing written down anywhere that really talks about it. There's no job description. Um, there's also, there are some states that provide the first spouse with um, a budget or a staff or protection or a driver. And our state doesn't do that, which I think is a benefit. Um I would certainly not be pushing for, for that to change, but it does give me a personal bit of freedom to be able to say yes and no to things without feeling a large amount of guilt. Uh, so there's, I have a huge amount of freedom as the first spouse. Um, so what, what does the first spouse mean? I, one day I kind of had this epiphany. It was really at um, an event where I was sitting in front of the legislature. It was the sesquicentennial uh, statehood day. And I realized that I was the person who needed to know when to stand up, when to clap, when to, when to look serious, and when to smile and be cheerful. And I, I kind of thought, I'm sort of the first mom of the state. You know, I'm the person who's supposed to know what to do and when to do it. So not that I'm trying to mother anyone, but trying to be that role model and that um, person who just thinks about how should things go and how can I be a leader and what direction can we move in. So th there's no job description. I kind of make it up. And if you look at the previous first spouses, they did the same thing. They kind of took on a focus and moved in a direction. We're either very public and some were very private. So here we are, and you have been traversing some of these obligations and opportunities too. And so perhaps uh, tell us a little bit more about what you have focused on. Things you don't think about when you say, sure, honey, run for governor. Um, one of them is that your, your state's about to celebrate its 150th, and there needed to be um, just a little bit of leadership from the governor's office. And that was an opportunity that came about that I certainly was not expecting. And that has taken two years of my time. And um, it's been fantastic. I've met people across the state, uh, looked at, uh, been able to drive out and just meet with people and make those relationships happen. Never had really done any fundraising before. And that's a humbling experience. And I've gotten to do that a lot. Um, Never planned a train trip across the state or a laser show, which is happening uh, later on this year. So lots of never made a mobile museum. So some skills that I never had before. Um, and then beyond that, I knew child welfare would be a big focus for me. That was one of the reasons that I encouraged Pete to run for governor was because um, I knew that there were issues in child welfare, and I thought if any state can get it right, it's us. And I wanted him to try. I wanted to try. And uh, that's that's been the big issue. And then we were talking a little bit earlier when we were just sitting down. Um, human trafficking, I think, may end up being the next phase after the 150th. Because there's not going to be a 151st celebration. I've decided that. We're going to take a break. So, Well, that's the hangover. There, there you go. That is the hangover. That's good. I like that. So tell me more about those initiatives then. The child welfare work that you're looking uh, to further. And you also mentioned human trafficking. 
Um, really quickly, they have taken the the back seat to this 150th because that was certainly the issue of the day when we started. And now that that's cycling out, I'm able to focus more on maybe some some bigger issues. Um, and uh, with child welfare, I'm working with Nebraska Children and Families Foundation and uh, looking at implementing some community-based prevention programs where communities assess what their needs are because each community is different. Omaha is certainly different than North Platte. It's even different than, I mean, for heaven's sakes, Bellevue, which is different than Plattsmouth. So in what Scott's Bluff or McCook have, their needs are going to be different. So looking at communities, helping them assess what their needs are and uh, what their strengths are and then who is there already working to solve some of those problems and what the holes are. Helping those holes to get filled, either within that community or, well, and with state support. Because right now, states tend to look at things as a one-size-fits-all solution, and we're trying to help them focus on that doesn't always work. What is a community's need, and how can the state solve that in their specialized way? The second is human trafficking, which is the attorney general's initiative. I'm not going to throw an ugly coup and take that one over. He is doing a wonderful job. His entire staff has really helped to focus our priorities on human trafficking. And um, with the support of Salvation Army, the Women's Fund, lots of groups out there who are helping solve this problem. And I think I may start helping to throw a little weight behind that um, in, in different ways. So we've had Megan Malik from the Women's Funds on the show talking about uh, human and sex trafficking. And it is brutal, soul-searing stuff that people are experiencing. So what draws you to the work of eradicating that, that practice? I'm challenged in this because I'm not on the ground I can't imagine what people who deal with the face of human trafficking have to go through day in and day out. Um, so there's a bit of humility for me in that, uh, that I'm taking the airplane view of this horrendous practice and, and situation. Um, but I think when you just think those, those kids could be mine, that, that could be my child. Um, that could be me. That hopefully there's a bit of empathy and love that comes through and that um, you want to make sure that they get out of that as much as you'd want to get out of it, as much as you would want your somebody coming and protecting your child and saving them and taking them in. Once again, it comes down to empathy and, and having that, I don't know, love, um, thoughtfulness, mindfulness. Oh, it's hard on the land. Now it's born.
So you alluded to encouraging your husband to run for elected office. Why and what kind of discussions did you have about the consequences of stepping very much into the public arena? When Pete ran for Senate way back when, um, at the end of it, when he didn't win, I said, well, that was fun. We're done now. We're not doing this again. Um, and then the whole governor position, that we thought things were going to fall together one way, and then they didn't. And I realized this might be an opportunity. And I certainly, neither of us are political have political chops. We, we have not had a drive to be political. Um, but if you're looking at making child welfare better, you got to take it to the state. Um, I've done it as an individual volunteer. I've done it on boards. I've tried to do it institutionally. It has to be done at the state. And um, so for me, that was the driving force. But I think Pete saw that same idea applied statewide. Um, if you're going to get roads fixed, you, what's he going to do? He has to run for governor. So clearly, child welfare is important to you. Why did you not run? Why did I not run? Well, I had three kids. Oh, let me start with my excuses. Why didn't I run? <laughs> All the excuses that somebody else can throw at me when I say, why don't you run? Um, Pete was more inclined to do it. And I'm okay with that. I do feel like being in the supportive role of Pete is achieving a lot of my goals. Um, who knows what the future holds? I, I can't imagine I'd ever run for office at this point because I see what it takes. And eight years, I think, will probably be about enough for the two of us together. Um, so who knows what the future holds? But it, 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 takes, it takes sacrifice. It takes far more sacrifice on his part than it does on mine. So. I find that so interesting, if only because objectively I sit here and want to see more women in elected office. And then I can start disagreeing or agreeing with people based upon policy. But, I, but first of all, I need to see more representation that represents the society we're in and maybe brings different perspectives that I think is being omitted from our current system. And yet I also acknowledge what you're saying, that this isn't, it doesn't fit everybody and, and nor should it. So I'm torn between these two conflicting ideas ideals. I want more women to run for elected office. Well, we want other people to run, don't we? <laughs> um, it It is challenging. I think a lot of people think that they have, and having opinions and thinking you know what's right is very different than actually being elected and putting it into action, which is tough work, tough work. Um, and so people, I think, need to acknowledge that. When it comes to women, and I, I think it may be any, it may be every category, but I'm going to throw the white male category out because we don't seem to have a problem with that group running. But every other group, I think, doesn't see the path to being able to do that. And um, this, my idea kind of came from, an article I read about foster care families, how one church, one program was utilized by this church is that you recruit 10 foster care families. They all take the training. They all go through the work, but only one is actually going to adopt or take in that child. The other nine 
play the supporting role. And they are able to do respite care. They're trained and licensed. They can go out and do the driving. They can serve all those purposes. So you really have a, a, a nest holding that egg of a family. Um, I think politics has to be the same way, where you, if we could recruit 10 and then fill in the blank, whether it's women or somebody else, um, Native Americans, uh, you know, African Americans, you think about groups, younger, under, you know, under 40 group, you recruit 10, one's going to run, but the other nine actually agree to support because it's, it's easy to be asked to run. It's hard to actually run. You have There are so many roles to be played. And um, I think more people also need to step up and be willing to play those supportive roles. If I felt an opportunity as a woman, it would be that... It, it, this is this is tough because it would be that a woman can be a leader, can be strong, can be opinionated, and still keep a hold of her relationships with her her husband and her kids and other people and be respectful and be respected. Um, on the other hand, I'm not running for office, so I do feel a certain amount of guilt that I'm not the one putting myself out there, really being the leader and. It, that's why I respect a lot of those women who are out there doing it, putting themselves out there, because I haven't been willing to do that. From what you've been saying, I have a sense that you feel as if um, you're able to make positive change in the position you have. I, I wonder if you found that there is some tension, um, and by that I mean concepts in balance, between having a public persona and a private life and persona, and, and maybe having to... Um, relish the fact that this position gives you opportunities that might not otherwise have been available, but maybe also constrains you because you have to conform to maybe some expectations. Um, I always say a governor's spouse has one primary role, and that's not to be a nightmare for the elected official. Um, so trying to make sure that I don't do anything that's going to take his focus on his job off of his job. I just you don't want to be that person. I think probably every spouse feels that way. So that would be the one constraint that I would have is that I never want people to look at me in the position I'm in and confuse me with my husband or take away from my husband in any way, which is challenging because we think very differently. We have very different opinions. So um, people will say, "Well, what do you think about this position?" And I won't say because it people confuse it too much within what my husband thinks and I don't want that to happen so constraints on um, people that I don't know well yes there are lots of them there there's always that being careful to balance what they're wanting to find out and what you how you're wanting to um, communicate with them I don't know that I'm really explaining this well but personally you know it's just I have made such dear friends, and um, I have I have just been blessed with so many opportunities to talk with so many people that I don't feel too many constraints about it. I feel a lot of freedom. Have there been any personal consequences um, for you when when you've expressed that? Um, and I, I think it's wholly admirable. But when you've been strong and opinionated. So far, nobody said anything to my face. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Once again, I have to worry about um, about what the price is that's paid on P by Pete. Um, 
because nobody cared about my strong opinions before Pete was governor. Nobody, my friends would ask, what does Suzanne Shore think? But now if I'm asked, it's what does the first lady think? And therefore I'm defined by my husband and do not want him to pay the consequences. So I tend to keep my mouth a bit more shut um, on specifics. Um, he and I certainly have lots of conversations. I've never felt any negative consequences to it. I'm not ashamed of any of my views. Um, and I feel like they're based upon some solid discussion and perspectives. Uh, and that's what I appreciate about Pete, too, that we're very different, but that his opinions, though they differ from mine, um, are based upon an understanding of different ideas and perspectives and at least have been challenged and thought through. So we don't ask men in positions of power, uh, whatever that, that, that position is, uh, typically to be representative of all men. And yet I would imagine that in your position, quite often you might feel as if you're being expected to represent all women in some way. And I wonder if you've had that experience and, and maybe in, in what context? Oh, I might have, but I'm so oblivious I didn't notice. Um, if anything, I think I've been asked to represent a, a lot of the categories people know I do. I, I represent anyway, a CASA volunteer, a mother, um, a nurse. I get asked to do a lot of those um, types of, of um, activities to, to speak at a lot of those groups. But just as far as being, I, I think we're a pretty educated state that uh, nobody's going to look at me and think, oh, you you are the typical. Um, so I don't feel that kind of pressure. I don't think anybody else has that kind of expectation on on me or any of the, the other spouses of, say, the legislators or the elected officials. So I don't feel that pressure. We're good. If I were a boy, even just for a day, I'd roll out of bed in the morning and throw on what I wanted and go. Drink beer with the guys and chase after girls. I kick it with who I wanted And I never get confronted for it Cause they stick up for me If I were a boy I think I could understand How it feels to love a girl I swear I'd be a better man I'm Stuart Chittenden Joining me in conversation is Nebraska's First Lady, Suzanne Shaw. How were you shaped? What was your upbringing like? I have two very different parents. Uh, when people meet my mother, they're like, oh, I can't believe she's your mother. She's just so nice. And I think, what does that mean? Doggone it. And she is. She's very nice, very compassionate, thoughtful at all turns to everyone. Um, I have an incredibly strong father um, who was blessed, whether he knows it or not, and he does, with three daughters. Um, and so he raised us just like he would sons. I mean, we were we were taught to be strong and independent, and you take care of yourself and um, get a job 
the day after you turn 16. We've been working up until that point, but you go out and you get your real job when you, the day after you turn 16 and don't come, you know, solve your problems, solve your own problems. Um, and I have stories on that that I love telling at times, uh, but that's that's what shaped me is that ability to be compassionate, but also to be self-sufficient and strong. And that's what I've tried to give to my children, keeping in mind that my role as a mother is not to coddle them, but to raise good adults, good, strong adults who are going to make this world a better place. You left me hanging with reference to stories. Oh. So... Oh, boy. Um, well, my all-time favorite. Well, this isn't really going to be that life-changing, but it helped me <laughs> define who I was. I was in college, freshman, um, living on the top story of a, of a residence hall in uh, at Oklahoma State, and our light started filling up with goop. The, the ceiling was leaking, and it was happening in several rooms, and all of the the women were calling their parents, and those parents were just raising high oh, with everybody and going after after the residence hall group. And um, I call my dad, and he's like, what do you want me to do about it? And I said, well, you got to make these calls. He's like, you're an adult. I'm not living there. If you want this changed, you've got to do it yourself. And I did. I did what I could at 18 years old out there. But all of a sudden, I realized, oh, I get it. I am in charge of myself. And of course he'd be there. Of course he was going to be that nest that caught me if I was bawling, you know, and he's, but, uh, that was a defining moment in my life. Yeah. And, and, you know, stories, we didn't have a lot of money growing up our first vacation together. Um, that is a big definition because I know what my parents sacrificed to take us on that one vacation. Um, so and he was a farmer, just, he was the, he, he had been a farmer and, and then he started selling airplanes and he's just this strong, um, independent kind of gruff guy. I, just, I adore my father. You earn several degrees. <laughs> yeah. So English, then an MBA. So the English sounds um, open to any possible future, but no particular future. The <laughs> MBA sounds very practical. Um, in fact, the, it almost sounds as if the English degree was your mother's side, the MBA was your father's mm -hmm. side, and then nursing. But anyway, um, so you studied a lot. So yeah. what drove this? Yeah, it's not that that complicated. What happened was, like I said, there wasn't a lot of money in our house. And so um, needed to work. And one of the jobs that I had in college was being an RA on the floor and loved it, did it for three years and got that English degree and thought I wanted to teach. And they came in and I kind of decided, no, I don't know if that I, that's what I want to do because that's what soon to be college graduates think. And um, they came to me and said, do you want to run a group of residence halls. And I thought, that sounds like fun. I don't have to leave college. Yeah. And so they paid for my education. Uh, when you're in, when you work in colleges, they don't pay you much, but they give you lots of free education. So I decided I'd get my master's and at Oklahoma State, they kind of focused on liberal arts who were moving into the business world. So that worked out really well. Uh, went to work for Xerox and thought, boy, this isn't as much fun as being in college. And a friend of mine contacted me at uh, University of South Dakota, and they had a position in the dean of students office open. And um, I ran up there and within 24 hours accepted that job. I had started a master's in counseling, but realized after a while that it, I needed to get out, that 
It's called the Peter Pan syndrome when you're in universities that nobody ever wants to grow up. And I was there and just realized I couldn't live like that for much longer. I was 30. And so that's when I decided nursing. And uh, I don't know if I... There was a drive in me. There was a reason why I felt like I needed to do nursing. I don't know if the drive was really, or the calling was to do nursing or to be where I was in order to meet Pete. Who knows? But I got both of them. I got my nursing degree and and Pete. And uh, I I did nursing for about three years. Boy, it was so long ago. And then I had the kids and decided to raise them instead. What was this calling towards... Um, nursing. Oh, okay. This is this is a funny, strange story, especially for me. Um, it was not. Yeah, this is different. So, just trying to kind of figure out what I wanted to do and where I wanted to be. And I, frankly, well, my grandfather had just passed, and um, the experience was miraculous for me, transformative. Um, watched him, he had a stroke and then he he went downhill and watching the nurses, the nursing staff really comfort and console us as we had to make some tough decisions and watching them make a big difference in our lives. And, and so that was impactful. But then um, also realizing I wanted to have a set of skills that I could fall back on that, that really made a hands-on difference if everything went to heck in a handbasket and nursing seemed very practical um, and being coming a doctor just took too long at 30. I was too old for that kind of stuff. And then the weirdest thing happened Un, for no good reason. I ended up getting a periodical on going into nursing. And I thought if I were the powers that be and wanted to send this obtuse human being a message, I guess I would have her have this experience, and then I'd send her a periodical. But that's what drove me. I thought, well, why not nursing? And Creighton had one of the few accelerated nursing programs. And uh, so I got my degree in one year, and it was a great experience. Loved it. Loved it. And felt like I, I at least tried to give back what those nurses gave to me when my grandfather was sick. I'm sure I wasn't always successful, but I, that was always my goal. Um, looking back on your life, do you think I studied English? I have this MBA, I have this experience and uh, accreditation as a nurse. Do you ever have any regrets looking back that you're not pursuing um, a professional career of that kind? Oh, I've never been too goal-oriented. I kind of go where the wind takes me, um, and it's worked out so far. We'll see how it goes from here. But I feel like I have used every one of those degrees to a certain capacity. And I think each one gives me a perspective and also a legitimacy to speak on certain topics. Um, I can bring any conversation back to comparing it to being a mother, to being in school, or to being a nurse. And, uh, you know, shoot, an English degree, you always need to write. And uh, business, I can tell you, plays a role in my life daily when it comes to being a parent and doing management, when it comes to running, helping with the Nebraska 150th celebration and having to, for heaven's sakes, get a mobile museum up and running in a few months. So I feel like I've used all those skills and all those perspectives. Maybe that's rationalization, but it works for me. And who knows what in the world I'm going to do. I always threaten my parents that I might go back and get that circus performing degree. <laughs> so we'll see. We'll see. What do you think might be next for you? 
Oh, I would have never thought I'd be where I am now four or five years from now. So I'm not even going to try to project. Um, you know, hoping my children don't listen to this. I hope I have grandkids in, in at least like seven, eight years. That's my goal. Um, but beyond that, who knows? Um, who, who knows what I'll be doing? Hopefully making the world a better place. At least my part of the world. Looking back, reminiscing on Caught a brother doing bad, then you put me on Told me not to be ashamed of what I got Never mind, I'm hating niggas up and down the block, back. Held it down and the bills got paid Said go ahead, baby, do the same And when God blesses us, I want a Lexus With a hideaway mansion in the hamptop Girl, you must have lost your could it be for me you came so far? So Nothing like the ordinary woman mm-hmm. You're the very beat inside my heart Girl, you're like a star, I feel so high Shining like a diamond out in space Girl, you're like my mother, my sister, my lover Irreplaceable, oh, nothing can take your place So the theme of the show is women and there are all sorts of social constructs around what it is to be feminine. Let, let me first ask for your take on, on the social constructs of being a woman or the you know, femininity. I put all of my eggs in the next generation. I hope that they've learned that they're growing, that they are getting a wider, broad, a wider view of what strength and leadership is and that it can take a lot of different forms. Um, I love the fact that different problems that we have with how we treat one another are getting uh, called out. And hopefully, once again, that will educate our generation, but also the next generation. Um, I know my poor kids have gotten more than their fair share of lectures on talking over people and being respectful and listening over just babbling on. Um, there you go. I, I put all, I just have hopes for the next generation. Um, as far as defining, you know, how to be feminine and be that leader, it's just going to be role models. Um, it is, it is challenging to hear the previous generation and our generation. Sometimes the things that I hear about why they didn't vote for a certain candidate or or can't see that person fulfilling that role and it it feeling like it's based upon the fact that they're female once again hopefully we can change that with baby with role models and with conversation you know the um one ironic example recently was uber's sexual harassment allegations a member of the board a male member of the board made a remark that if another female member was added to the board, in addition to Ariana Huffington, that that would just result in more talking. Just a complete and utter blindness on the part of men to be self-aware about how they perpetuate uh, some of these social, um, these social constructs and almost an, uh, an unwillingness or an inability to, to look back at themselves. And of course, I include myself in this too. 
So I'm not really sure that there's a question there, apart from maybe to um, posit the thought that men are the problem. Oh, I'd call us all out on that kind of stuff because I, I'm glad somebody caught that and called it into question and uh, put it out there on social media and then started showing studies that that's exactly the opposite of what happens when you have more than one woman on a board, that they tend to clam up and not speak. Um, but the, the fact of the matter is, I fear that women do the same thing that we all kind of cannibalize each other. So I don't know that it's just a male problem. I think we all have a problem of um, of, of seeing different as being good. It, I just read an article in the New York Times about uh, men going into traditionally female occupations, nursing, education, and how they are choosing to not change professions and maybe not have a job rather than changing professions. But just as many of their wives were saying, yeah, why don't you just keep looking for a job in your current field? We haven't expanded our boundaries to be able to see feminine and masculine. can. That's not how we should be defining our roles and our, our occupations. Women are sometimes as, as blind as men. So. so let's pick that apart a little bit too. Um, on the one hand, I have a sense that women are very good at being role models and mentors to each other. But there's also some interesting data that points out that, that women really can undercut other women in you know pretty vicious ways. I'm obviously gender-wise outside of the experience of that, and I don't know if that's something you have experienced or seen or heard about. I've never, ever, ever experienced that. Um, I have been a distant witness to men doing the same thing to other men. It's a, it's a level of insecurity that's causing it. Um, the problem with that, the challenge that women have is, is the same challenge any minority group has. Oh, well, we already have three women, so we don't have to do any more. So women may become defensive, may feel like, well, they're really only going to be three out of 10 positions. Well, they've already hit their three. So I need to make sure I'm one of those three. Um, that would be the challenge, I think. I think women, I, I think people, the, the groups that are underrepresented are just defensive um, and territorial. But um, I don't think it's because we want to eat our own. I think we're just paranoid defensive and and as soon as we make as soon as we don't worry about three out of ten and we see five out of ten sometimes seven out of ten sometimes four out of ten until we don't have those kind of parameters and those concerns you're gonna get that with any underrepresented group i know you're raising your family but outside of your family do you mentor um, anyone well, I try to lead and support. I try to educate. There are there are several women who work with me or for me, depending on how we define that, um, and making sure that when I hear them question something they're doing, that they that they are um, that I listen to their concerns, but that I support them, and uh, especially when I do see them being mansplained. Um, but you know what? That generation, they're all younger than me, gets it and recognizes it before I do, uh, which is what gives me hope. That um, and, and I think men, the younger men are the ones who recognize it too. It's always the older generation that's doing it that I see. Um, maybe I just 
hang out with cool self-actualized men. Um, so there is a group and just trying to, trying to be leaders, but I do that for the men too, trying to make sure they have that kind of support and perspective. I think that's just being leader. That doesn't matter whether you're a male or female. We all owe that to the next generation. That being said, and I agree with you, but there is nonetheless some interesting data that indicate that, you know, a dollar spent on a woman yields so much more ROI in terms of um, pro-social benefits. And I'm, I sometimes feel really compelled by those arguments that we should be dedicating more of our public resources and our public good towards those um, demonstrable pro-social areas, which often seem to revolve around women. And I, I don't know if this is a good approach or... Mm, I don't know. I think, uh, I don't know. Um, I would say that's a convenient way to do it because whatever we're trying to encourage with those kinds of programs are where women are at that point. They're the, one, they're the caregivers. They're the ones who are working within a community, um, kind of that ground game. They're more likely um, to be that group. Once again, is that gender or is that just opportunity and where those people are? Um, I don't know. I, I don't believe in the superiority of women. Um, although, <laughs> and I don't. You know, it's very funny because I always thought it's, you know, it's socialization. It, it's socialization. It's not, it's nurture over nature. That's always how things have been. And um, I remember I kind of wanted to tell you this story because it really shook my world when I realized there is something about nurt, about nature in this world and the differences between male and female in general. This is a very big generalization. Um, or maybe I should say feminine and masculine. Uh, our perspectives are being changed and challenged daily on what being a woman and male man means and what being feminine and masculine and where things are on the spectrum and how I d identify. So I think it it's really interesting where we will be in even 10 years on this conversation. But um, I always knew that what we did, but now I'm just going to put this in the 53-year-old perspective, what we did between men and women, boys and girls, was totally nurture. And the powers that be decided to show me one and gave me twin boy and girl. And um, I decided that I was not going to be a part of that oppressive system that set people into the certain roles. And uh, we got this cutest little dolly. I, her name is actually no Dolly, and I can tell you where she is at this very second, um, who had on the cutest little dress that matched some PJs that Margot, my oldest daughter, had. And Pete wanted to put, love that doll and loved my daughter. And so he'd put that doll in there. Oh, I'd come into the room and say, no, 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 we're not doing that to our daughter or our son. I take Dolly out of the bed and put it in Roscoe's bed. And five minutes later, that doll would be on the floor and Margo would be crying. And Pete would go and put it back and Margo would be happy and Roscoe would be, I don't know, probably, I don't know, making farting noises or something, doing something <laughs> crazy, banging, jumping, crawling out, being crazy. And, uh, I just realized after having this battle several times and then watching Roscoe turn a fork, a, a stick, whatever he can find into a gun, that there is something crazy that goes on with nature and that we are who we are and that we can't fight that. Now, is that associated with traditional, you know, male, female anatomy? And I don't know that it is, but I think that we are who we are and that we all need to embrace that and see the strengths. 
So back to the beginning. The theme is women. It's a very broad subject. Have we really talked that much about women? <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure we have. So what have we missed? What have we not talked about? Hmm. I would encourage more women to get into politics that um, the whole, when I was talking about nature versus nurture, I'm not sure um, that is a natural inclination for most women to want to put themselves out there the way that you're required to. And it's risky and it's challenging. And I just see more men jumping in and saying, I'm willing to do it. But I do think more women have to run um, in order to, well, it, diversity leads to a better decision-making. Um, and so the more that our elected bodies can represent who we are as a society, the better off we'll be. Um, so it, so I, that is the one issue that I come down to when it comes to women is we've got to step up okay, somebody else has to step up. I'm not stepping up, am I? It's a little judgy, isn't it, for me to... I, I think that reflects it. the nuances and the complications of our environment. And it's not just elected office, but it's our accountability surely as an electorate. Because I think all the while the society has unfair and different expectations purely based upon gender, we already hamper, I think, that that possibility for, for women to run based on policy compared to a man running on the same or other policies. Um, the conversation shifts. Oh, we could have a whole different show on that. I think it takes away good, strong people from running, what we've become and how um, I, don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to come off as too bad, but just how divisive and mean-spirited things have become, um, judgmental. Um, it's... I think we're keeping good people out, but that's a whole different show that I'll take on later, <laughs> some other day. <laughs> oh. And you're talking here not so much about the gender divide, but just no. the level of divisiveness that exists in our public discourse. Yes, I think we keep good men and women out because of the negativity, um, but women by far are less willing to put themselves out there when they see such venom being thrown around. Well, I think that's in part because the venom that's being thrown at women is much more personal and about all sorts of aspects about themselves and their identity than it is about um, their policies and, and the nature of their policies. To a certain extent, I always come back to Boehner and the fact that he was just vilified and roasted for crying. And I think, wow, you get it too. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's That was crazy to watch that happen. Um, yeah. But not just running for elected office. So we see a, a deficit of women in the boardrooms. We see, I think, a deficit of, uh, of women in venture capital circles. We see a deficit of women in all sorts of other fields that seem to be the exclusive preserve of men. I think we need to make progress in all of these domains. I think you're right. And it's not just women. It's, once again, lots of different categories of people. Um, and that's boardrooms of companies, but also board, boards of not-for-profits. Um, the same people keep getting chosen over and over and over again. And so they'll be on, if you are a woman, if you are of color, um, 
if you if you're from a you know fill in the blank kind of category, a lot of times you are thrown into being asked over and over and over again to join the boards as though you are the one and only out there. Um, so as a board member who's been in that position looking for somebody who isn't white and male and, and female, um, I need to broaden my, my perspective and my base that I pull from in my experience. And so I see it not just with women. Um, I see it with lots of different categories that aren't white. I'm always grateful for every guest that gives up their time to come and chat with me. More than their time, but their opinion and thoughts and feelings. Well, that just leaves me to say thank you, First Lady Suzanne Shaw, for being on the show. Oh, well, thank you, Stuart. I really appreciate that. To listen to this show again and to hear past shows, download the podcast at iTunes, search for Live's radio show with Stuart Chittenden, and leave a review while you're there to let me know what you think of the show. I'm impressed you could say sesquicentennial. Good for you. <laughs> That's a real test around the state. I've, I've been practicing hard <laughs> now if you can spell it i'll really be impressed okay uh s-e-s-q-u-i-c-e-n-t-e-n-n-i-a-l yes oh, bingo Stuart. i've been practicing that too <laughs> <laughs>